0: makes a lot of sense to me that a group of people like ourselves would get together, would want to get together, spend a weekend directly reflecting on the experience of freedom and also discussing it, talking about it. In a way, it's... I mean, we do talk about happiness a lot, but... normally we don't talk about it in a... I don't want to use the word serious, but in a thoughtful way, which is interesting, <laughs> See how relevant the experience of happiness is. So, Ajahn Chah, as you have read probably or heard already, talks about Nibbana as this reality of non grasping. And Nibbana means extinction or um, to extinguish. To put out a fire, and so uh, it's and it's interesting, you know, the Buddha taught in this context of the Brahman sort of being that defining that that culture at the time, and one of the things the Brahmins were into was, was worshipping fire. So it's interesting that the Buddha. And we always have to understand everything in its context. So here the Buddha is in a society strongly dominated by the Brah- Brahmin people um, who were the priests and um, were really in the fire. And so he makes the pinnacle of his teachings, his spiritual teachings, a word that literally means, in common usage, means the putting out of the fire. <laughs> so, Either he has a really good sense of humor, <laughs> or he knows how to get people's attention. And but it, it that image of the fire and the cooling of the fire is used quite a bit in the teachings of the Buddha. And so uh, we can look, you know, as we're mindful of our experience, sitting, walking, moving being still we can notice how what the mind is doing how it might be fueling a fire the fires of greed anger delusion or how what the mind is doing might be allowing things to cool down maybe removing the fuel or certainly not adding to the fuel And the interesting thing is uh, and I'm sure you've seen this this process of heating things up agitating the mind entangling the mind fueling our fires uh, because of the of habit we can pretty much use anything for fuel including Dharma practice many many wholesome things and this would be One of the things you can talk about next week at the end of the talk, I'll pass out um, some possible reflections for the walk and talk tomorrow morning. And uh, one of the things to reflect on is how you've actually experienced uh, a way of cooling the fires, putting down the burden, being peaceful, being skillful. And how then that actual skill or that actual release then gets taken up and somehow converted into fuel for the next fire. You know, like being identified with being the meditator. And then how much suffering, how much burning can come out of that. Probably even today, each of us in our own little moments uh, had a raging fire around the identity of being a meditator or not wanting to be the meditator, thinking this practice is great, thinking this practice is stupid. But some identification with this process we're engaged in. And because of the attachment, um, there was burning. So reading a little bit from the article I gave you, um, Ajahn Sumedho's article, I want to say a few more things about that. This is Ajahn Sumedho. It's often said that the Buddhist way is to not grasp, is not to grasp. But that can be just another statement that we grasp and hold on to. It's a catch-22. No matter how hard you try to make sense out of it, you end up in total confusion because of the limitations of language and perception. You have to go beyond language and perception. And the only way to go beyond thinking and emotional habit is through awareness of them. Through awareness of thought, through awareness of emotion. The island that you cannot go beyond is the metaphor for this state of being awake and aware, as opposed to the concept of becoming awake and aware. And this is the, the the real heart. And we talked about, uh, I think in the question and answers today, I forget when that was, but about this uh, using stories in a relative world. We need to be skilled at having stories and themes for our attention. and And some themes are relatively toxic and some themes are relatively enlivening and and even liberating, relatively speaking. But the practice is putting down identification with any particular theme, or any idea, or any concept. So thinking about Buddhism, or even having an idea of what you're doing, is not practice. But thinking you have to forget about what you're doing is not practice either. It's just a different orientation of the mind. And it's a little black and white, you know, the thinking about practice and doing practice. It's like we don't need any concept right now in this moment. We don't need any concept or any information actually to be present with experience, to be the one who knows that it's like this now. So if we just settle back into a few moments of awareness, and if that habit of the mind that's like a Dharma coach telling us how to practice, if that arises for us, then that can just be what's being known. Oh, the mind's thinking or the mind's coaching, telling the mind how to practice. And that's being known. So the mode of practice isn't dependent on ideas or concepts. In a sense, the jumping-off point, like the confidence to do practice, is very much involved with thought and concept, right? All these teachings, what I'm saying now, what people what we've studied and heard and read for so many years, many many of us. So there's obviously a lot of teaching, a lot of concept, a lot of language. But practicing from an idea is not the practice. Understanding that ideas are just ideas, that's the practice. Concepts are just concepts. I think that's what Ajahn Samedo is pointing to here. And he gives some personal examples if you haven't read this article. And... uh, I mean, I remember the one nine-day retreat I did with him a while back. Um, I've mentioned this many times. He spent the whole retreat, um, all the different talks were one way or another about stream entry. And... um, sort of the awakening experience. And... One of the things he'd come back to over and over again is this very seductive concept. I'm an unenlightened being practicing to be enlightened. And that seems so harmless, or maybe even seems appropriate, that idea to inhabit, identify, be attached to that idea. That I'm an unenlightened human being practicing as best I can to become fully enlightened. But any identity, no matter how wholesome it may appear to be, the thought may be in a sense wholesome, but the attachment or identification will always be unwholesome, will always be dukkha. So a little later he says, Ajahn Smero says, this is why the metaphor of the island that you cannot go beyond is so powerful because it points to the principle of an awareness that you can't get beyond. It's very simple, very direct, and you can't conceive it. You have to trust it. Right, just like that moment, maybe you did it when I suggested it a few seconds ago, you know, just to drop in or whatever word you want to use, open up to that simple experience of mindful awareness and it's not something we do that's why it's so frustrating <laughs> the practice is so frustrating it isn't something we do it is like Ajahn uh, just said it's something we have to trust it's already the knowing uh, the mind knowing the one who knows is already doing that it's nature nature is knowing and it's really uh, a shift like a paradigm shift from the mind gravitating over and over again to its identification with concepts, its dependency on concepts, thinking a thought, getting attached, thinking another thought, getting attached, to the abandoning of that. And it's in this abandoning of that identification to concept, and thought, idea, that one finds oneself in the knowing. The one who knows. The Buddha knowing Dhamma, the way it is. And if it involves this sort of personal effort, then we're not yet there. It doesn't mean that in, in some places in practice we're not making an effort to be mindful. But what we're really doing is we're making an effort to, we're sort of replacing something that's really seductive and has a lot of greed and aversion with it, with something that's more neutral, a better jumping-off point, basically. Like, I'm really here being with my walking, lifting, placing, lifting, placing, and that redirecting and all that work is a way to realize that it's possible to put down the to-do list for a while. It's possible to not be obsessing about this old problem in my life or this possibility in my life. And to be with something really simple, even if it involves this identification, I'm the one who's aware of walking. I'm the one who's with my breath right now. But that's a big step to have put down, left behind some really toxic, erotic stuff and to be with what's relatively neutral and not so much triggering uh, that greed and aversion so much makes for a, a more natural awakening to this effortless knowing. The, the freedom of the mind not dependent, not fixed on any ideas, any thoughts. So again, Ajahn Sameda says you have to trust it. You have to trust this simple ability that we all have to be fully present, fully awake, and begin to recognize the grasping and the ideas we have taken on about ourselves, about the world around us, about our thoughts and perceptions and feelings. The way of mindfulness is the way of recognizing conditions just as they are. We simply recognize and acknowledge their presence, without blaming them or judging them or criticizing them or, or praising them. We allow them to be, the positive and the negative both. And as we trust in this way of mindfulness more and more, we begin to realize the reality of the island you cannot go beyond. Doesn't that make sense? That metaphor actually makes sense, the island you can't go beyond. Because in that refuge, in the knowing, there's really nothing else to do. That's it. That's also what makes it hard to do. It's hard to let go of the mind, dependency, attachment to thoughts, and meaning, and evaluation of good and bad. That's hard enough. But even when we have moments of resting in the knowing, it's really hard to trust that that's enough. Because I... I should do something. But all we can do is trust. I remember in a talk I heard of Ajahn Saneda, he was talking about his practice and how how much, uh, the, in terms of problems at least, it's dominated by restlessness. And as he talked about that, I, I had the sense that this is what he was talking about, that having a lot of confidence in this knowing and having a lot of momentum, like this capacity to drop, to release the mind's identification with thought, with worry, with planning, with good and bad. But in that experience of knowing, feeling this tremendous restlessness, like the momentum of who knows how many lifetimes of always the mind, always establishing itself, as the doer. And not taking the bait, but it's still there. That momentum, the inclination to be the doer is just there, just asking, you know, like a worm squiggling in front of the fish, you know, please bite me, take me, do something. And I see this a lot in my own practice about uh, the, basically what we could call The tendency to overdo things in practice. And how much easier that is, because that's what the mind has done for so long. And how much more challenging it is to to simply know what's arising and let it be. And things could be really messy, like we could be in that moment, the so-called bad meditator. But the, the practice would be to know it's like this, and that's all not to be, try to become the good meditator or try to fix, but to trust that knowing that it's like this, there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing more to do but that than to know it's like this now. So, if you use the calm to investigate, so I see that's what's happening a lot to me. It's like, it's not so much wanting to do, it's fun to have insight. Yeah. It's for insight. But, like, so the investigative mind is really striving. Like, but there's a sense of somebody having to do the investigation, and that still has to be transformed that you have to realize that the investigation happens in the process of knowing. Like, that's what knowing does. It sees what there is to see. And uh, so that whole part, like, you know, like I mentioned, uh, when we're walking or we're being with the breath, part of what's going on is we're investigating, like, why that's so hard to be continuous with the breath or continuously aware of the walking like what's in the way of that continuity, what's in the way of just relaxing into the practice more. So there is definitely a place for investigation, but at some point we have to trust the awareness is enough, and that that will illuminate everything. And uh, that that the need to understand, as you suggested in your comment, Paul, you know, that gets in the way. It's it's like you said, it's greed. And it all arises out of that basic notion that I'm an unenlightened being practicing to become enlightened. And that is such so often an unquestioned attachment because in this context it seems so appropriate Like, it seems, doesn't it seem so compelling, that idea that we're not enlightened? But you see, even on an intellectual level, how wrong that idea is that we're unenlightened beings. You know, it's like the opposite of the anatta point of view. To define ourselves as being unenlightened is to basically not, having not comprehended what the Buddha's been teaching us. So we really have to, we, we really have to practice catching that idea and the attachment or (coughs) identification with that idea. Now I'm not saying that we should replace it with, I am fully enlightened, because that's, you know, obviously just as off as I'm not fully enlightened. We don't need either of those ideas. Both of them are problematic. In fact, what idea do we need to be attached to? Now, I'm talking from a particular point of view. I'm I'm reading the chapter for the talk tomorrow, for the Sunday talk from Ajahn Chah's book, uh, Food for the Heart. And in there, he's just lamenting this basic problem where, you know, it's like we want to practice, but wanting gets in the way of practice. And there is that dynamic. And so this goes back to that relative and absolute. It's like, Desire takes us to our practice. There's just no way to avoid that. We're suffering in life. We hear about this practice. It inspires us. We want to take it up. We want to be successful at it. But as we're engaging the practice, we have to take these teachings and we have to reflect on them deeply and let them have their effect, let them transform how we practice. And the practice has to move in the direction of something that's free and effortless. It's like, if we want freedom, we have to practice freedom. Freedom with what? Well, freedom with the conditions now. Which means the mind has to rely on what's already here. What's already in motion. Because that would be a very liberated, free state. And every time we conceive of somebody who's got to do something to fix something, we're immediately in a dukkha state. That's a stressful state to be in. In the same way, if you went home and the basement was flooded and you got to deal with that, that would be stressful. I have something to do. i got to, you know, clean out that muck and repair the things that need repairing. And it's the same thing that we, the notion we have, like when I catch my mind, having been lost in thought, and I catch my mind in the act of, you know, worrying about something or fantasizing about something, I see immediately that instinct, that sense of personal responsibility to fix something. And then I often catch a similar uh, wrong view, which is this personal sense that I don't have to fix something, like this sort of parental, like don't fix, you don't have to fix. So like, and, uh and the practice is not to be fooled by either one of those. And they kind of, you know, the mind kind of gets involved and kind of is, is aware because involvement hurts. And it wakes us up. You know, As soon as there's any identification, then there's a visceral tension with that. What was relatively unbound now starts to feel relatively bound up, tight. And... We're training the mind, there is a training, we're training the mind to trust in the end of practice. That's what we're doing. And some teachers, you know, really emphasize this right up front, and other teachers don't really talk about this until later. They really talk about creating, you know, getting personally involved in your practice until you get quite skilled at creating wholesome states, and abiding in wholesome states. And basically, most conditions, most situations in your life, you're able to construct really wholesome states to abide in. And I don't know, you know, what to say, except that uh, I think it's useful to hear both of those instructions and to see what you can convince your mind to do. And understand that when you're constructing wholesome states, taking personally... personal responsibility to construct false estates just know that that's what you're doing and be interested in how that's a burden yet it's a burden that actually delivers some results in the same way if you put yourself to the task of cleaning out the flooded basement eventually you're going to have the satisfaction of the basement now being back you know in order and it's the same thing with our mind. If we put ourselves to the task, if we're intelligent about it, if we follow the advice of people who know what they're doing, and we deal with the mess of our mind, eventually we'll put it back into order, and it will be calm, it will be clear, it will be dominated by loving kindness and patience and clarity and you know, all those wholesome qualities. But it's a big pain in the butt to have this mind to constantly have to take care of keep it clean, keep it in balance. So even if we get really good at that, it's, it's always going to arise for us, is there a deeper kind of freedom where I don't have to be responsible for the mind? And that's really, some people like Ajahn Samadha really teach in this direction, with this emphasis. That's what Ajahn's Armorow that passage I read right from the preface from the very beginning of this book, he was talking about how interesting it was showing up in England to study with Ajahn Sumedho how much he talked about this ultimate state whereas when he had spent his couple years as a novice and then one year as a monk in Thailand Ajahn Amaral hadn't really heard anybody talking about nirvana so what's the deal? Ajahn Tani Saro talks about one of his teachers. Uh, this great line, uh, saying, "Mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them." And so, uh, life is dukkha when you try to do something. When you take, when we take the position of the doer, then life is heavy. Life is troublesome. But is life troublesome if we don't take that position? My first kind of earth-shattering insight was right at the beginning of my practice, in the first months of my practice, and I had been obsessed about death for a while, reading a lot of books and just thinking about it a lot, even before I started practicing. And then um, my best friend started working at this spiritual bookshop in Washington, D.C., uh, called Yes Bookstore. I don't, know if it, I don't know if it still exists. It was a great place, though. And... uh so I started reading books and including books about uh, on Romano Maharshi. Some of you know him. He's a wonderful, great Indian saint who died in the early 50s, 1950s. And, and he described him in, in one of his books somebody wrote, or I don't know if it was a, record, uh, a transcription of his talk or some one of his disciples wrote it. I'm not sure. But uh, when he was 13 or 14, he lay down and he imagined death, his own death. Um And had a, a big awakening. And so I thought, oh, maybe that will work for me. And in a sense, it did. I mean, not, not that I had an insight like his, but it was it really changed my life. And so I, I just very systematically imagined dying and then imagined being dead, you know, as as if I know what that's like. But just like you know, <laughs> our minds are, imagination's a great thing. you know, just like nothing's happening. And uh, just sort of the imagining the absence of everything and, uh, and feeling a sense of loss, you know, in that experience. And then a voice just arose in the mind, or something like a voice arose in the mind. Well, who's this a problem for? And at that point, either right before or right with those words, something happened. Something really, like the mind understood something that it didn't understand before. And it was like a big explosion. And, uh, and for days, I was, uh, even weeks, I was just a space cadet. I think I told some of you. I went home late, uh, recently, or a few days after that experience, uh, to Minnesota. I was living and working in Washington, D.C. at the time. And uh, I was walking out of a store. And I walked right into a plate glass window and broke it. <laughs> I missed the door completely. You know, it was glass, and the door was also glass, so it was a, it was a little bit understandable. <laughs> Just a little bit. And, you know, that glass is thick. <laughs> I got cut a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> well, it was very funny because I was so worried they were going to be mad at me and make me pay for it, and they were so worried I was going to sue them. (laughs) 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 Which I kind of got later in the moment. I I didn't really get what was going on, but later realized, oh yeah, they they thought I was going to sue them. (laughs) But anyway, that insight, it's, it's this, it was a little bit of this recognition, I mean, in that quirky way thinking about death, but what I think, now in hindsight, what the mind understood but wasn't easily conceptualized even weeks after, it understood basically the experience of the non-doer, that the mind actually doesn't have to take any of this personally. Whatever it is, this giving a talk or dying or whatever we do or imagine that we do, none of it has to be energetically owned in that moment. And when the mind realizes that possibility... It realizes, initially, something it didn't know before. Because we operate with a very deep assumption, unquestioned assumption, that we do need to take things personally. This is personal. And we have to, life is about personally doing things. You know, we have, there are poems and there are teachings that say, well, you just let life live through you. Or, you know, let it all be nature. It's just nature. I sometimes say that. At the end of talks, you know, when you wake up tomorrow, when you go home tonight, you know, see if it will just happen on its own. Maybe maybe you don't have to get yourself home. Maybe the whole process of getting yourself home, well, can happen on its own. Or getting yourself through the week, or getting ourselves through this life, or getting ourselves through the dying process into whatever's next. Maybe that's not this huge mountain that we have to lift. Maybe it all happens on its own. But it doesn't, you know, we don't have enough faith, but hopefully the teachings are engaging enough that we begin to experiment, like let the breath happen on its own. Let defilements come and go without feeling like you have to personally get rid of them. Maybe they come and go on their own. Maybe the practice unfolds beautifully on its own without somebody feeling obliged to walk the path. And Ajahn Samedo talks about this a little in, in this article. I'll just read a few more sections. Awareness is not about making value judgments about our thoughts or emotions or actions or speech. Awareness is about knowing these things fully that they are what they are at this moment. So what I found very helpful was learning to be aware of conditions without judging them. In this way, the resultant karma of past actions and speech as it arises in the present is fully recognized without compounding it, without making it into a problem. It is what it is. And isn't this tricky? This transition in a practice is very tricky, I find. Because then when my mind is being bad, it's really hard to not want to get on the high horse and bring the attention back to the breath or something like that, whatever it might be, or just scolding ourselves in some way. It is what it is. What arises ceases. As we recognize that and allow things to cease according to their nature, the realization of cessation gives us an increasing amount of faith. In the practice of non attachment and letting go. I'll skip a little bit. If we look at it in this way, Nibana is here and now. It is not an attainment in the future. The reality is here and now. It is so very simple, but beyond description. It can't be bestowed or even conveyed. It can only be known by each person for themselves as one begins to realize or to recognize non-grasping as the way, then emotionally one can feel quite frightened by it. It can seem like a kind of annihilation is taking place. All that I think I am in the world, all that I regard as stable and real, starts falling apart and it can be frightening. And this is, you know, in some sense what happened in that, that early sit. Actually, I was lying down when I was doing it. And, uh, I was somehow, through my imagination, able to or construct or touch that grieving of like giving away the life that I have. So it can feel that way. But if we have the faith, this is Ajahn Sumedho. But if we have the faith to continue bearing with these emotional reactions and allow things that arise to cease, to appear and disappear according to their nature. Then we find our stability, not in achievement or attaining, but in being awake, being aware. And even though in the tradition, and, and we tend to think of things in terms of absolutes, you know, like we're absolutely ignorant or we're absolutely free, the fact is there's a, a spectrum of this coolness. You know, from being relatively heated up, you know, in being the doer, it heats us up because it's not easy being a doer. And so sometimes we're really the doer and things get really tight or hot or bound up. And sometimes the doing is relatively refined and subtle and the mind or the heart feels very cool. And this, I think, is a nice, and especially in in tropical places, this would be a really useful metaphor because heat, you know, is unpleasant and cool is pleasant. Now, (laughs) coming out of our Minnesota winter, this doesn't work as well. But we still get the idea because we know how nice it is to cool off. This is from Ajahn Buddha Dasa's a um, wonderful little booklet you can get online called Nibbāna for Everyone. It's just like 10 pages. I recommend it. And he says, speaking of the Buddha, he discovered that the Nibbāna that is the coolness remaining when the defilements has, have finally ended. He discovered that Nibbāna is the coolness remaining when the defilements have finally ended. He called it the end of Dukkha, meaning the exhaustion of all the heat Produced by defilements. So liberation is the absence of the heat produced when the mind is churning with self-view, good and bad, me and you, and doing, wanting to become, wanting to get rid of, all of that creates heat. However much the defilements are exhausted, there is that much coolness until there is perfect coolness due to the defilements being finished completely. In short, to the degree that the defilements are ended, there will be that much coolness or Nibbana. That is, Nibbana is the coolness resulting from the quenching of the defilements. Whether they quench on their own or someone quenches them through Dharma practice, whenever the defilements are quenched, then there is the thing called Nibbana always with the same meaning, coolness. And that goes back to what Paul mentioned earlier about, you know, sometimes, maybe like through concentration, we can feel quite cool. But that coolness is the result of of the tendencies to do being suppressed. And when they're no longer suppressed, then we start doing things again, and we get heated up because of that Later in this article, Ajahn Buddhadasa says that there is just no way to survive as a human being, or he says, even as any animal, without moments of coolness. And he says also here that the moments of coolness probably far outnumber the moments of heat. So part of being mindful is we're naturally getting the lay of the land, like how it is that we survive as a mind and body. We find coolness in different ways. Deep sleep is one way we find coolness because, for those few moments, or however long that is for a difficult person, you know, there's not much doing going on. Certainly, there is when we're dreaming, but when the dreams aren't happening, and that's why it's so luscious. When you wake up having been in the middle of a lot of dreams, it's not so luscious. You know, it feels like, God, that's as bad as life. <laughs> but when when you come out of a deep sleep, it has a very different feeling. Like, oh because it was really cool. There weren't too many fires blazing. Or even being absorbed in a, a novel. Even if the novel's like relatively intense, but because it's not our drama, it's somebody else's drama and you put the book down, you feel relatively cool. Or even being really busy sometimes, you know, where things arise in your life and there's just no choice, you have to do them. Somebody needs your help, you show up and you do it, and then there's this, and then there's that, and you're just doing one thing after another, and there's no deliberation because the things that are arising just have to be done. There's like no doubt in your mind, there's no negotiating, you just do them. And then, later, after all of that business is done, you can feel quite cool, even though you've been so busy the last few days. Because there wasn't much self-centered burning going on. Because there was nothing to deliberate about. It didn't make sense to complain, like in that particular situation. Like the the obvious example is somebody in the family is in dire need, or dies. And then you've got to deal with all the and it's like, you're the one to do it. And, and it doesn't make sense to blame. or I mean, you don't blame someone for dying or being sick. You just do what needs to be done. And if you conceived of that earlier, you would think, boy, that's, that would be a real problem. But the actual doing of it is quite cool. Because the mind isn't making any dramas. So the coolness doesn't really have anything to do with how busy we are. Mentally or physically. It has to do with the burning of the defilements, greed, anger, and delusion. And, you know, that's typically, most often that's how the Buddha defined Nibbana. Extinction of greed, extinction of hate, extinction of delusion. This is called Nibbana. That's what the Buddha says. So, it is, this is sort of the description of fire. When we're reading, you know, put it, let's make it active, when we're fearing, angering, hating, being distracted in, you know, when we're involved in those activities, that is like the movement of the flames, or burning. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind, and snared, a person aims at his or her own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and one experiences mental pain and grief. That if lust, anger, and delusion are given up. One aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and one experiences no mental pain or grief. This is Nibbana, visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, comprehensible to the wise. Another quote, just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so, neither visible forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor bodily impressions, neither the desired nor the undesired can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is one's mind, gained is deliverance. And this, you know, even though the is of a mountain, it's not a tight thing. It's, I like the uh, uh, metaphor of being porous or transparent. So things still arise, provocative things, pleasant, unpleasant experiences still arise, and the heart, in a sense, is impacted. We, there's a knowing, but the, the experience isn't being stopped. It's not meeting any friction. So somebody we love dies, and that, that, that pain of loss is received. But in a sense, in a metaphorical sense, the pain doesn't stop. It just keeps moving on through. Whereas, you know, the, so that would be for a fully enlightened being, And for someone with some wisdom, that grief, that pain of loss is moving through, but there's to some degree there's some resistance to it, some denial of it, some suppression of it. So it takes some time for that pain of loss to move on through. And then if we're a relatively deluded human being, then we believe strongly that either I don't have any pain or I can't feel that pain, it's too much, and we uh, use denial much more. And then it could be forever before that pain moves on through. So it's just an image to use, a metaphor to use, in terms of evaluating the practice or understanding the practice. When something beautiful or something not so beautiful arises in our experience, are we going to let it all happen at once, let it all in and just keep moving all at once, or are we going to, in one way or another, practice resistance or denial or struggle with it? And we can work with just little things, like a painful memory comes up often in my practice, you know, different things I said that weren't quite right in the day, and it's like that yucky feeling, is the heart willing to let it all the way in? just move right on through, completely undefended? Or are we going to struggle in some way or deny in some way the Vedna, the sensations associated with that experience? Are we going to allow it? Or are we going to struggle with it? And it's like, those are our two choices, allowing or struggling. So, of course, there's a lot more to say and to discuss, and you can pick it up tomorrow. And uh, pass these out. So, again, like you did yesterday, you might want to, uh, once you, once you get settled in bed tonight, you might want to have that nearby, and you can. Look at that and feel free to rewrite these reflections in words that make more sense to you. I just did my best to try to pull out some things that might be useful. So just to frame it in terms of the discussion this morning, last night I I talked about the metaphorical or the mythological journey that we're all involved in. So really creating a useful story about... You know the call to destiny or the call to awakening, where we have some sense that our life is limited, like our values are limited, this is not the way to happiness and or we hear something that seems possible freedom, and then inevitably, with that call and acting on that call, we run into some problems, so we talk about we talked about this morning or you talked about this morning, like what were those trials those Periods of initiation as you responded to this call to be awake. And then taking it back into the marketplace, taking your wisdom, whatever you've come to understand, and testing it with your life, your experience. And that really sets us up, that last point of taking it back really sets us up for tomorrow's discussion, which is much more a practice orientation. So not the story of the practice, but the actual practice. And so using the more visceral terms of heat and coolness, talk about your practice. You know, how have you been in the experience of heat? Reflect on your experience of the heat of the mind and heart entangled or bound up with attachment or grasping what attitudes, patterns, or ways of understanding have supported these unpleasant experiences. Like, how is it that you're building a fire in your heart? Over, How are we doing that? Because if we're doing it, then we can see that we're doing it. Especially remembering that, the heat that arises when you are engaged in seemingly wholesome actions, but due to the attachment, there was suffering. So that might be a really useful thing to share, like, even in our practice, like, I mean, an obvious example, if you, some of you, all of you have been on residential retreats and sometimes there are one-to-one interviews, and you know how easy it is to tie ourselves up into knots, thinking about what we're going to say in the interview, or judging ourselves for what we did say in the interview afterward. And so here we are in a seemingly engaged and seemingly wholesome activity, creating a lot of suffering, constructing the experience of suffering. And the second, reflect on your experiences of coolness. Remember times when the heart was free, unentangled, unbound. What were the causes that supported these experiences of freedom? Reflect on any experiences of turning toward the heat of dukkha with wise, balanced attention and suddenly or gradually realizing freedom from that dukkha due to insight. What happened next? How did the mind relate to the insight? Reflect on experiences of the heat or weight of dukkha and reacting in ways that increase the burning, the entanglement. And finally, is the mind interested in freedom now? What, if anything, is in the way? Is freedom from grasping frightening in any way? And it might, you know, if you feel safe enough in your small groups, it might be useful for you to talk, uh, to describe in the moment Whether the heart is burning or cool, what's in the way of coolness as you understand it, what's fueling the burning, what view or attitude or activity of mind is fueling the burning, however subtle. So, just end with the book from the Buddha. Live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. We'll or just sit for a few seconds.